The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'd like to continue the thread this morning of the theme I've been talking about for months now, (laughs) the thread of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Um, Last time I was here, I, we were, we've been exploring for the last few, few meetings when I've been here the uh, aspect of the Eightfold Path about wise intention. Um, wise intention is part of the beginning parts of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path kind of has three categories to it or three sections to it. The first section being the category around wisdom. Uh, how do we orient our our minds towards our experience that will be supportive for us in terms of letting go of the suffering, of the reactivity, of the distress that we often live with in our lives. So the, that orientation around wisdom is very much an orientation around suffering. That was the kind of the problem the Buddha was trying to solve was this problem of why we are so miserable when we're trying so hard to be happy. You know, what's, what's going on there? And so he, um, he came to an understanding in his own practice, having a realization that we really misunderstand, we misinterpret how happiness can be found. And that in his exploration, he discovered that the way that our mind relates to experience is the key factor of why we suffer. That we don't generally just accept what's happening in the world. We want to change it. We want to fix it. We want to hold on to it. We want to keep it from changing. So there's not a sense of meeting, accepting experience as it is. And it is that reactivity to what is actually going on. I mean, what's going on in a moment is going on. And... Um, that, that mind that doesn't like that, that pushes against it and, um, and wants to hold on to it, is the mind that feels dissatisfied, feels unhappy. Uh, so he pointed to that kind of reactivity to our experience as being the key place where uh, our dissatisfaction arises from. So it's within our own minds that this suffering, this dissatisfaction comes up. So that's a, an exploration that we can make, actually. I, I sometimes say this is a really good news that the reason why we suffer so much is within our own minds because if it weren't, if it were actually a result of what's going on out there, it would be hopeless, you know? We would be infinitely at the uh, whim of our experience. Whereas we actually do have some say over what happens in our own mind. It takes a training to begin to have that uh, ability. And so that's what the Eightfold Path is about, exploring the practices, the tools that give us that ability to have some say about what happens in our mind. And so this orientation around wisdom uh, begins to orient us towards intention, towards acting, responding to the world in a certain way practicing the practices of the path. And three of the key intentions the Buddha pointed to on this path um, are the intention towards uh, 
renunciation, of letting go to our letting go of our a tendency to look towards sense pleasure for happiness. And that we that's a, a big way that we look towards happiness in the world is to construct a world that we think will satisfy our senses. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, actually. The Buddha said it it's a it's a form of happiness to have that kind of sense pleasure in the world. But he did he did say, you know, it's a lesser kind of happiness. It's not a very reliable kind of happiness because of the inherent impermanence of that experience. So we, um, we begin to, in exploring this, this practice, look towards something a little more reliable, a happiness that's a little more reliable, which is actually the happiness of letting go, of needing to have things be the way we want them to be. So that's the renunciation aspect of the wise intention that we begin to intend to behave in ways that support this letting go of needing to have our senses gratified all the time. The other two aspects of wise intention are the intention towards non-ill will and the intention towards non-cruelty. So this is... um, this is both looking outwards to our behaviors with others, you know, that we intend to uh, behave in a kind fashion, in a fashion that is non-harming. And it's also a way that we can intend to respond to our own experience. It's really amazing at times when we look at what our own minds do in talking to ourselves, how unkind we can be in how we relate to our own experience, our own minds. How cruel we can be to ourselves. You know, sometimes if we look at how we speak to ourselves and think about, well, you know, would I speak to my best friend that way? Sometimes we, we find we're crueler to ourselves than we are to our friends and to our families. So it, this exploration around the intention towards non-ill will and non-cruelty is an internal as well as an external exploration. So this is what I'd like to look at today, these, these uh, aspects of the intention towards non-ill will and non-cruelty. Can we ask questions as you go along or should we save them? Um, sure, go ahead. I mean, I may cover it as I go, but go ahead. Oh, we use the microphone so it gets... So I'm wondering if that wording, was the Buddhist wording sort of like a double negative, a non... The non-ill will? Not ill will, which seems different than kindness. It seems like more neutral than uh-huh. kindness. That's a great question. Yes, it is. That, that is the way it was phrased in the, in the way the Buddha talked about it. When he talked about kind of seeing, the way he, he said is he, uh, when he was exploring his own mind... Uh, before he became fully enlightened, he said, I saw that there were kind of two categories of thoughts. I could, there were thoughts of, of sense desire, there were thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty that would come up in his mind. And he put those on one side, and then he said, and then there were thoughts of non-ill will, non-cruelty, uh, um, and renunciation. So that word is the, the letting go of the sense desire. On the other side, 
he said, you know, I saw that when I engaged in thoughts of sense desire, of ill will, of cruelty, that it was, um, you know, it, it led me towards suffering. And that, I began to see, was not so helpful. When I engaged in thoughts of non-ill will, non-cruelty, uh, and renunciation, the wording, I like this wording, he said, I saw that I could think these thoughts for a day and a night, and it wouldn't cause anybody any harm. Um, so yes, he used the negative, and it is slightly different. I mean, for us, it feels like non-ill will is not the same as kindness. But it reflects a little bit the understanding that ill will, cruelty, are, are kind of aspects of our mind that visit, that they are unwholesome qualities that come up in our mind. And they obscure, essentially, a natural wholesomeness that is present when those are absent. And so the absence of ill will, the absence of cruelty, uh, initially we don't, we don't really feel it as necessarily kindness, but the simple absence of those creates the space for the qualities of kindness and compassion to come up. And over time, um, we really begin to see that it is the letting go, more and more of the letting go of um, those unwholesome states of mind basically reveals a really beautiful heart. It reveals a heart that is imbued with kindness, compassion, uh, a responsiveness to that, uh, to, to the happiness of others, and a kind of a balance of mind. So these four qualities of metta, of kindness, of compassion, um, karuna in the Pali, of sympathetic joy, of mudita, and of equanimity, of upeka. I, um, I like to think of those as kind of the emotional map of the heart that is not constricted. So as the, the heart lets go of the clinging, the desire for things to be other than they are, it kind of reveals these beautiful qualities in a way. Although, you know, we, we do um, need to kind of begin to touch into them and cultivate them. And that's part of what I'd like to talk about today. How do we actually explore these qualities? How do we cultivate them? Um, and how do we uh, learn how to act out of them? How do we learn how to not act out of the intentions of ill will and cruelty and act out of the intentions of kindness and compassion? Thank you. <laughs> um, So the, the metta, metta itself, this quality of kindness, um, has a, a feeling of connectedness, of open-heartedness, and it, um, it doesn't need anything in return that this open-hearted sense of kindness is just kind of an outpouring of well-wishing. And it doesn't need this, this, the quality of metta that is connected to this open heart that doesn't have any clinging or holding, doesn't need anything back. And that's a really beautiful uh, aspect of this quality. 
in my own experience actually um, when I I really connected with that feeling of that not needing anything back I had a, a situation where I was um, I fell in love with somebody and it wasn't returned and so there was a sense of you know having a, a feeling that wasn't going anywhere you know it's like oh I've got these feelings for this person but you know what do I do with them and so I sat with that for a while, you know, experienced those feelings and the sense of it being blocked somehow, you know, that uh, it doesn't go anywhere because it's not returned. And at some point in that exploration, I saw or felt a kind of a release from a fear. There was a kind of a recognition that, that there was a fear around having those feelings. And in that release from that fear, there was just this outpouring of, of well-wishing, for this person. It's like, oh, I hope that you're happy. And that feeling didn't need anything back. The really beautiful part of that feeling, though, was, I mean, it was kind of like, it really hit me over the head. It's like, you know, that's the feeling I've been looking for. You know, I've been trying to find that sense of open-hearted connection by getting it from someone. And it didn't need any response from anyone. So that's a, that's a beautiful quality to begin to recognize, that quality of well-wishing without needing anything in return. And for me, that was a huge turning point around you know, my whole sense of I need a relationship, you know, I have to have a relationship or I'm not fulfilled. That feeling was very fulfilling that feeling of that open-hearted metta. I'm not saying I live there, you know, I don't have that feeling all the time, but there was a kind of an insight around it that I've been looking for that happiness in the wrong place. And I've been looking to try to get it from somebody, and actually here it is, it's in, it's in this own heart. When it lets go of needing, that open-hearted connection is a very... Um, uh, it's a beautiful feeling that feels really good to the mind and the body. So this quality of metta, of kindness, it connects us to others in a way. In that example, it really connected me to that person in a way that didn't need anything back. So this, this open-hearted quality of metta connects us to others. It also connects us to ourselves. And I think that, that for me, I felt that so clearly in that single moment of wishing that person well. There was a deep connection to myself as well that didn't need anything from anybody. So that quality of that open heart, when it meets A kind of a, you know, when it's just meeting the world, it tends to be felt as that open-hearted connection. But the world is often not terribly neutral. You know, there are people that are suffering in the world. Uh, we run across, um, you know, a lot of pain in the world. You know, just keep, you just keep your eyes open and you see, you know, go into the grocery store. There's, there's a lot of pain in you know, how moms are dealing with their kids and the expression on the cashier's face, you know, 
tired that person is being standing behind the cashier cash register for eight hours you know there's there's a lot of suffering and the heart opens to that when there's no restriction that heart of open-hearted feeling resonates with suffering and the response of that open heart is compassion so it's not a uh, a restrictive kind of quality you know, when 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 that open heart meets suffering it responds its response is an open hearted compassionate wish and that compassion also comes in a way with a wish to respond now we can't always respond but you know it's like we can't always take care of the suffering like with the cashier, you know, it's like I can't do anything about the fact she's been standing on her feet for eight hours. But I can be kind. I can bring a a smile to my face and and be kind to that person. So there, you know, just that that wish of the open heart when it meets suffering kind of has a it, it comes with that intention to respond in a in a skillful way that open heart also meets the beautiful experiences of the world. There's, there are, you know, we, we, we see people who are having a great success or happiness or joy. Someone who's, who's just had a baby, who's just overflowing with that joy of, of having a child. Um, you know, someone who gets a new job and, you know, who has been out of work and, and now can support themselves. You know, the joy of that. When that open heart meets that quality, it resonates in kind. So sometimes that quality of mudita is called sympathetic joy or empathetic joy. I like the term sympathetic because it reminds me of the term sympathetic vibration in music. It's... Um, and what that refers to is that if you've got two strings that are close to each other, if you pluck one of the strings, the, the other string resonates with that first string. It resonates in sympathy to the vibration. And that's very much what it feels like, that when that open heart that is just not contracted, when it meets that quality of happiness in somebody, the heart resonates to that. It, it like it, it produces joy in our own hearts when we see people that are happy. It's a great feeling. And when our hearts are constricted, we don't experience that so much. We may instead experience the sense of, well, why isn't it me? Why don't I have that? And we're missing actually the opportunity to have that resonant quality of happiness uh, through that constriction. So this open heart of metta is a, it's a beautiful quality to explore, to begin to cultivate, to begin to act from as much as we can. So this intention towards metta. So... I want to talk a little bit about how we explore this, how we cultivate this quality. Um, And one of the main ways, actually, of cultivating it is to notice what gets in its way. So ill will (laughs) is very much what gets in its way. 
and cruelty if that's up. I mean, often we're not so much uh, in the mode of cruelty, although I have seen it in my mind. It's very humbling, you know, when we see that movement of, of cruelty in our minds. Um, we really get a sense of the uh, universality of this constricted heart that results in, you know, even in small ways, like uh, I had a relationship with somebody that broke up in a very unhappy way, and I found over the subsequent months that um, there was this wish, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a a wish that was hidden for a long time, but in practicing the mindfulness, it became conscious to me that there was a wish that that person be harmed in some way. You know, that, 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 they, not, that they have some kind of bad thing happen to them. And I was like, wow, you know, it was really humbling to see that in my own mind. But in that recognition, I, I really felt this compassion for the whole world in a way. It's like, wow, you know, this is why the planet is such a pain of such a bad state because we have these these urges in our heart towards harming, and it really opened me to the sense of of compassion for the the situation for the world. You know that the the seeds of war lie within my own heart, and my own exploration towards uprooting those seeds will be of benefit to everybody. If everybody were engaged in this, we might have a different world. So the exploration, one of the explorations around cultivating this quality is to explore these feelings of, of ill will, of not liking things, of cruelty. You know, to, to open our hearts, in a sense, with kindness to the fact that we have these tendencies. It's kind of an interesting paradigm to be kind to our unkindness, to be compassionate about our intention towards cruelty. So exploring that, you know, when these tendencies come up, not to say, oh, you know, try to, try to stuff it down and say, shouldn't be feeling that, I should be feeling metta instead. Somebody this morning was talking about seeing that there was a lot of upset in her mind and um, she said, my, my inclination was to try to bring metta to that upset. But she said, that's not what the mind was doing. You know, it didn't want to go to the metta. It was really in the upset. And, you know, what we do when that's the case, we connect to that feeling. So, okay, so we turn towards that feeling of upset, of ill will, of unkindness. Whether that feeling is is directed outwards towards others or inwards towards ourselves, we can meet that experience. And that very meeting of that experience, that very meeting, turning towards, is an act of kindness. You know, the mindfulness itself has a quality of being non-judgmental, of non-reactivity. You know, if we can turn towards an experience and allow the mindfulness to simply reflect frustration, irritation, dissatisfaction, a sense of this isn't good, this isn't right, kind of an unkind sense towards our experience or an unkind feeling towards another. When we can turn that mirror of mindfulness towards that experience, we are bringing this quality of 
non-reactivity to, we're, we're, we're inclining the mind in that direction of non-reactivity. And it brings along, because um, the mindfulness having this kind of reflective capacity of mind, you know that the mindfulness doesn't care what it's reflecting. It just reflects. It just knows, oh, there's anger. Oh, there's happiness. Oh, there's frustration. Oh, there's loneliness. Oh, there's depression. So the mindfulness just knows those things. And when we connect to that quality of mindfulness we're connecting to a a part of the mind that is non-reactive. And that non-reactivity itself, you know, kind of as I was talking about earlier, that the absence of the reactivity opens us to this space of these beautiful qualities. So the mindfulness kind of brings along with it in subtle ways at first, but more obvious ways as we go, Mindfulness brings along with it this quality of kindness. And so we can kind of consciously reflect on bringing a kind attention to our experience. So that's one way of cultivating mindfulness. I mean, cultivating um, this quality of metta, just noticing what gets in its way. And, and as I uh, just commented on about mindfulness itself, the cultivation of mindfulness itself begins to bring along this quality of the open heart. The open heart is the heart that doesn't react, that doesn't, isn't constricted. And that's a quality that's associated with mindfulness. So being mindful, turning our attention towards our experience begins to cultivate this quality of metta itself. And in terms of with um, exploring this with others, and if we can just be mindful and present with others, it can be experienced. I mean, it can be experienced as quite a, a beautiful thing. And if somebody is suffering, sometimes we have this sense of you know if somebody's suffering, we have this reaction to that. It's like. Oh, they're suffering. I better figure out, you know, what can I offer them? What can I say? You know, oh, you should do this or you should do that or you should do that. You know, we, we're actually, um, we think in a way we're responding out of kindness and compassion to say, oh, you know, oh, well, you know, why don't you try this or this or this? But often that response is coming from the fact that we can't stand the feeling of being with somebody who's in that much pain. So that's something to explore also. You know, as we uh, explore these intentions to act out of kindness, out of compassion, to begin to recognize when it's true open-heartedness and when it's a little bit of, well, you know, I just can't stand. I mean, it's like there's, there's a feeling of wanting to fix the person, not so much... Well, partly because we want them to feel better, but also because we don't want to be in the space of that suffering. So the, you know, the open-hearted quality of metta itself can meet any experience. It can be with any experience without resistance. And when we have that experience or capacity to be with somebody who's suffering... It's quite a gift to them to be non-reactive in their pain. One um, experience, I had some of you have probably heard me tell this story. 
I was with a friend and he was describing something that happened to him when he was a child that was, it was taking him back into the pain of that experience. And um, as I was sitting with him, I realized, wow, this is pretty intense, you know, and I just, I just made my, I set my intention to just be as present as I could to just be there for that pain, to not be reactive, to not be um, trying to fix anything, to just sit there and be a witness, basically, for his pain. And, um, you know, he went through quite a bit in that time. And a couple days later, he came back to me, he said, what were you doing? And he knew a little bit about my Buddhist practice. He said, were you practicing metta? (laughs) And I said, you know, no, I wasn't. I was just trying to be as present as I could, as non, you know, just to be as present as I could. And so for him, that, that sense of just being non-reactive and present, that willingness for me to be non-reactive and present was experienced as a kind of a sense of that metta, of that kindness. So that was a great uh, learning for me to really appreciate the value of just being willing to be with someone who's suffering and not to try to say, oh, you should do this or you should, you know, try this or think about that and just to be with. Very, very powerful. So practicing uh, looking what gets in the way, practicing mindfulness, practicing just that sense of Can I just be with what's here? These will cultivate this quality of metta. And then noticing, too, when you feel a sense of that metta, or when you have that sense of connectivity with somebody, highlighting that for yourself. You know, when when that comes up, not just letting it kind of brush by, but actually recognizing, oh, this is a quality. This is a quality that's worth attending to. When we bring our mindful attention to beautiful qualities of mind, it has the effect of creating the causes and conditions that will lead to them appearing more often. It's kind of interesting. Mindfulness has this two-sided thing to it. You know, if we bring our mindful attention to ill will to the qualities that get in the way of metta, it creates the causes and conditions for those to appear less frequently in our minds. It begins to support an unraveling of those tendencies. I think partly because as we're really mindful of those experiences, we see how they don't serve us. We see how they lead us. I mean, as the Buddha said, you know, when I was experiencing those thoughts, they led me into suffering. They, they led in the direction of suffering for myself and others. And that recognition, being mindful of that movement towards suffering, the mind actually doesn't want to suffer. So it begins to understand the, uh, the movement in that direction, how that happens, and it starts to let go of the causes. So it starts to let go of the... Uh, the movement towards ill will, when it sees that there is a suffering that results from that. On the other side, when the mind is present and aware for kindness, for compassion, for this quality of joy in connectivity with 
seeing somebody else's joy. It sees that that heads towards happiness, towards a deeper kind of happiness, not the happiness of of having what we want, but a a kind of a more um, relaxed kind of happiness, one that doesn't depend on getting anything back, but just on receiving and connecting with our experience and our uh, relationships. So mindfulness, one of the things the Buddha said, mindfulness is always useful. No matter what's happening in your experience, mindfulness is always useful. So when we notice qualities of of kindness, of that sense of the, the heart kind of resonating with someone's uh, suffering or when it's resonating with someone's happiness to uh, recognize that as a wholesome quality, as a beautiful quality. That will support its cultivation. It feels good to have that open-hearted connection. And so that can also support us in... um, when we actually recognize that feeling and recognize, wow, this is a nice feeling. This is a, like when I described that open-hearted feeling for wishing that person be happy, it was a beautiful feeling, that quality of feeling very fulfilled in just wishing that person well. Then we can... um, Notice what supports kindness, compassion to come up in our minds. So what are the causes and conditions that get in the way of that? And what are the causes and conditions that support that? So you might notice, for instance, that um, if you're rushed in coming here, you know, if you, you're a little bit late in coming here, that your attitude about the other drivers on the road may be less than kind. Um, so noticing that, perhaps, again, so this is the exploration around what gets in its way. You're noticing the ill will. You may, you may notice that the quality of rushing is part of the contrib- contributing to that sense of they're in my way or you know, they're cutting me off or whatever. So perhaps looking at the other side, maybe exploring, maybe if I leave five minutes early, I won't feel so rushed. How does that impact my experience of the other drivers? Does it give me more of a sense of a space? Maybe not the full sense of, oh, you know, you know, overwhelming, overflowing kindness and compassion for everybody on the road, but a sense of non-reactivity, which is moving in that direction. So looking at the causes and conditions that support this open heart. When we're not rushed, when we're not afraid, we're not caught in busyness. Those are some conditions that support the, 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 the heart being able to connect. Other things that support that, I know spending time with people who are kind. You know, inclining our minds towards um, noticing the good, noticing the beautiful. That the, the texts actually say that that, that noticing 
the beautiful, noticing what's good about experience and people, is the proximate cause for this quality of the open heart to arise. And so we can reflect on this. I know that Jim did a a talk on metta last week, um, and he did kind of the practice of metta, and I'm not going to cover that so much this week more, I'm just talking about the quality. But in that exploration of the practice of metta, one of the instructions is often, when when you call up somebody in your mind to whom you'd like to wish well, one of the ways to engage in that connection is to reflect on things, qualities that you appreciate about the person. Reflect on the beautiful aspects of that person. So reflect on kind things they've done for you or the qualities that you like about that person. We can do this for ourselves as well. You know, we can, in terms of... um, having a sense of connecting to ourselves in a kind way, we can also connect with qualities that we appreciate about ourselves. Now, I know for myself, when I first began exploring metta, this was not an easy thing to do, either for others or for myself. The way my mind worked, and still works to a good extent, is that it notices the things that are wrong. That's the kind of filter that my mind has used for my whole life, to notice what's wrong and to try to figure out how to fix it. Other people have, the op- have a different filter. They may have a filter of noticing everything that's good and beautiful, you know, walking into a room and saying, oh, I really like that orchid. It's so beautiful and it's so simple in here. It's just very peaceful and relaxing. I would walk in here and notice the spot on the carpet. You know? That would be my orientation. So we all have our own filters, that we uh, bring. So this is um, this exploration of noticing the good is a kind of an orientation. Now, for some people, this may be very natural, and for these people, metta may come more easily in a way. For me, metta was really hard when I started this. It was like all I could see was the difficulty, and. Um, It took quite a lot of practice. And for me, actually, the doorway into the metta was the mindfulness. That that over time, the mindfulness opened my heart to non-reactivity. And from that place, I could begin to connect with this quality of metta. Looking, exploring, what do I appreciate about others? What do I appreciate about myself? So this, um, this exploration of metta can be different for each of us. You know, we will each have our own pathway into this. But if we can, you know, reflecting on noticing what's good about ourselves. For me, initially, this was quite a, a challenging practice. You know, for every good thing, I mean, first of all, it would be like a really long time before I could even come up with something that I appreciated about myself because I saw only the things that I needed to fix or change and you know, there's that problem, and there's that problem, and there's that problem. So it took a while before I began to recognize, well, my willingness to try, my willingness to try to engage, you know, not to give up on myself. I remember one time doing the metta practice, may I be happy, and I'd be like, oh, I can't do that, you know. May I be healthy, oh. 
<laughs> and I was like, maybe I should just give up. And then there was, no, don't give up on yourself. And in that moment, it's like, oh, that's the metta. Don't give up on yourself. So whew, there was a little bit of connection there. Oh, that's okay. So I can start there. <laughs> don't give up on yourself. So it can be challenging for us. Um, so I, one thing one teacher offered at one point was uh, he actually sat up there at the end of a night of practice on retreat and he said, you know, if you're having trouble thinking of qualities that you appreciate about yourself, he said, I'll give you some. I'll tell you some. You're here at this retreat and you are cultivating mindfulness. You're cultivating patience and compassion for your experience. You're cultivating uh, wisdom These are beautiful qualities that not everybody is interested in exploring. And that was like, oh, okay. And so I came, I had this list, you know, it's like I would remind myself and I'd think back through my day and it's like, yep, I was cultivating patience and I was cultivating concentration. And after a little while, it became more natural to connect with these qualities and, and then to appreciate myself for these qualities. And then there's the exploration with others. You know, I think Jim did talk about this last week a little bit, that sometimes when we're um, offering this kindness or trying to connect with this open heart to others, what comes up is, but they did this thing. You know, got to be careful. Got to protect myself from that part of them. And so we, you know, we kind of block off that open-hearted channel because there are these areas of fear, essentially. So the exploration is, okay, you know, acknowledge that part, recognize that that part exists, but can we have an open-hearted relationship to them that both acknowledges that fear and uh, allows that open-hearted connection to be there? It can, it, they can both be present at the same time. It's not that we're saying with this open-hearted connection, yeah, come and do that to me again, we need to keep um, a kind of a sense of our own, what's skillful for ourselves. This uh, quality of metta doesn't give up our, our own wish for our own happiness in, in, so that we can, for the sake of others, have them be happy. It's not a zero-sum game, actually. The more we cultivate this happiness in our own heart, the more that it's available to offer to others. So that the, the quality of metta isn't somehow saying, well, you be happy and I'll be miserable over here. It's looking at how can we uh, explore. I mean, th- so there may need to be ways and times we need to protect ourselves. You know, over the, the course of practicing metta, we at times meet people or come up with people in our mind that are really difficult and the practice is to be able to open our hearts even to those most difficult people. So that may require a sense of distance. You know, it's not like we would invite that person over for dinner. It's not like we have to say, yes, come into my life and walk all over me. But we also don't have to close our heart to that person. We can... And sometimes that's part of the way we, we work with this practice of metta for difficult people. You know, we, we envision them very far away. You know, well, when you're, when, you're, when you're 200 miles away, then I can think about 
having this wish of kindness, you know, so that I know that I'm safe, I know that I'm protected. Somebody described for themselves um, how they worked with this particularly difficult person for them. They said, when I envisioned them tied to a chair, I could wish the metta. You know, and this isn't, this isn't, you know, this isn't the sense of, you know, uh, creating suffering for them, but it's more a sense around how can we feel safe? You know, that, that that has to be part of our exploration of the metta. And over time, we can hopefully get to the place where we envision them just as they are, <laughs> not, not bound and gagged. <laughs> Mm. I've got more to say, but I want to leave some time for comments. So, any, uh, yeah, Peter, pass the mic. So, thanks very much this morning for for your talk and the topic of it. Um, I've been thinking a lot about a subject that will let's just call call it uh, happiness for Buddhists. Happiness for Buddhists? Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, there's kind of... There's sort of this... Well, maybe it's an assertion even that the... Op, well, if you're not suffering, then you'll, be, you'll get the great happiness. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily what Buddhism teaches. Although some, pe- some teachers will virtually say that. Um... um one could, for example, cite someone who has what psychologists call flat affect. Mm-hmm. Now, they may not be suffering, but they're not happy either. Right. Could, could you comment on that? Please? Yeah. Um, you know, that's... Um, how do I want to comment on this? This is a big topic. <laughs> I've got five minutes. Let's see. What can I say in five minutes? Um, So there's kind of a, a, a movement from suffering to non-suffering. And, um, you know, the, I would actually propose in a way that that person who has the flat affect, while they're not what you would call actively suffering, there's some sense of things still being off. You know, there's that offness feeling. And that's the definition of dukkha. You know, the, the, the dukkha of the Buddha's understanding isn't what we think of as major suffering. I mean, it includes that, but it's not just that. So the, the dukkha of... Um, and I've talked about this. I think I talked about this pretty recently um, kind of the derivation of this term dukkha is the do part of the word means bad and the ka part, my understanding, is refers to the empty space in the middle of the wheel, in the middle of a wheel. So the place where the axle goes through the wheel. And, you know, if you think about, if you have a wheel with a bad empty space in the middle, it may be bad in any number of ways. You know, it may be tight, so that there's a lot of rub, or it may be loose, so that it can't stay connected. You know, you you you're driving the cart, and the uh, 
the wheel falls off. <laughs> you know, you get major crash and burn when, the, when it's, it's loose. Or maybe it's off-center. So there's just a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, just not a very smooth ride. Um, so that dukkha has the, the subtlety of not a smooth ride as well. So the um, that person with the flat affect is not in the major kinds of suffering, but with observation they'll probably find there's a sense of, you know, it's just not the way I want it to be. It's just not quite right. And there's something off. It just, you know, doesn't quite feel good. Just a little bit that way. So there's not the complete freedom from reactivity. There's still some of that reactivity in there. So the, um, let's see, how did you say the suffering is the, oh, the happiness is the absence of suffering. Um, so the, and this kind of is similar in a way to the, you know, metta is the absence of ill will, you know. It's not something that immediately, if you're not experiencing the ill will that's obvious to us, that we're going to feel this overflowing boundless metta. It's a slower uh, unfolding in a way that, that, that there are subtler and subtler levels of that ill will that we uncover. And likewise, subtler and subtler levels of suffering that we uncover. So the, the Buddha's description of complete happiness is being free from mental pain and grief. You know, just imagine what it would be like to be absolutely free from mental pain and grief. That sounds pretty good. Um, That person with the flat affect, I would propose, is not completely free of mental pain and grief. So, you know, the understanding is that it's a very, very deep letting go of that suffering. So it's it's the, the, the subtlety, even the very subtlest kinds of suffering. And those become revealed to us the more we practice the, the, the subtler ways of holding, they're just like little, little things of, oh, I need that, or got to get rid of that. Yeah. Just very quiet movements of mind that get in the way of that complete freedom. So um, I, it is defined, I think, in the texts, the freedom from greed, freedom from aversion, freedom from delusion. Now this is really where it comes in. So freedom from greed and aversion is I think often what we think of as being free from suffering. You know, so there's not that reactivity. You know, I'm, not, I'm not wanting things, I'm not wanting to get rid of things, so free from greed and aversion. But delusion is the place where we're not seeing things clearly as they are. And that also gets in the way of our true happiness. So the the, the exploration into how are we not really seeing things clearly, I think that's really where the happiness comes when the delusion falls away. You know, there's no, uh, no need to hold on to anything, no need to get rid of anything, and no one, you know, the recognition there's no one even to do that. And there's that, you know, I think I said this last night, no self, no problem. So does that speak to you a little bit? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a that's a worthy response to my question. <laughs> it, it's it is an iceberg, and we don't need to plummet steps yes. right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
Any other questions? Or we have a minute or so left. Well, yeah. Uh-huh. Can I just tag yeah. Your uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, when when you talked about the flat affect, I was thinking. You know, there are millions of people on Prozac, um, and you know that seems to be the easy fix if you're not happy take this antidepressant and I think that that gives people sometimes an artificial flat affect mm-hmm. and then I'm also wondering if it prevents them from really opening up the heart uh, you know I'm not sure I think I think um, you know sometimes medication is really helpful in that it gets you over a hump you know that gives you the possibility of then connecting with experience and sometimes I think it can be a block, you know. So I think it depends on the person and it depends on what's going on. Um, I know that for people who have manic depression, you know, that they give them a drug that keeps them kind of flat. And it is, uh, you know, that's part of the difficulty of it because they, they miss the, the highs and they miss the, the sense of really connecting, you know. So... Um, but on the other hand, you know, it also keeps them from going, going to the lows. So I wouldn't say there's a one, a one answer to that. I think there are, there are some drugs that actually get people to the place of being able to start to meet their experience more skillfully. Yeah, but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And I think there probably are, we, people are over-medicated, I think, in this, in this culture in particular. That they're very quick to say, oh, I'm a little bit unhappy, let me take some Prozac so that I don't have to feel this. And, you know, that the medicine of mindfulness and being willing to meet that feeling is, it runs counter to the stream of our culture, which is like, oh, you know, just find a way to be happy, you know. Eat this food, take this drug. So we need to stop. So thank you for your attention. So next week we'll move on to um, the next aspect of the Eightfold Path.